0: The United Kingdom's National Health Service is facing a crisis, which has included delays in emergency care, worker strikes over pay and conditions, and cancellation of hundreds of thousands of operations and appointments. But there's little consensus on how to repair the system. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Hunter, a Professor of Epidemiology and Medicine at the University of Oxford, a Professor Emeritus at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and a Statistical Editor at the Journal. Dr. Hunter has written a perspective article about the problems facing the NHS. Dr. Hunter, could you start by outlining the general features of the NHS, how care is delivered and funded, and how is the system similar to or different from health systems in other high-income countries? Certainly. So the NHS is celebrating its 75th
1: anniversary at the beginning of July, and its foundational principle is that all medical treatment should be free at the point of care. So it's essentially paid for by taxation, funded by the government. It's a little more complicated than that. Looking at it from the outside, from the U.S., for instance, one always imagines it's this massive monolithic organization, but in fact, it's managed differently in the four nations of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, which is the biggest, and Wales. But England is the biggest, and so often when we're talking about the NHS, people are thinking about NHS England. And the fundamental principle, again, is that the hospitals, general practice are all free at the point of care. And having said that, not everybody is an NHS employee. So the NHS is the fifth biggest employer in the world, 1.5 million employees. But most general practitioners, for instance, run their own practices and they receive a capitation for the patients they see, but they're essentially independent contractors. So it's a very complex organization.
0: And then what kinds of challenges did it face during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, and how did the system respond to those pressures?
1: So anybody will tell you that the system was having great difficulty meeting its targets for waiting times in emergency room, meeting its targets for waiting times for specialist consultation prior to COVID-19. But the system essentially shut down for several months in 2020, and again, several months in 2021. And all of that essentially compounded the pre-existing problems and led to greatly lengthened waiting times and difficulty accessing services. Everybody expected that in 2022, a very successful vaccination campaign reduced pressure from COVID-19, the system would bounce back, but it hasn't bounced back. And it's not quite clear why it hasn't bounced back better, but the waiting times are at an all-time high. In addition, over the winter, when the pressures are traditionally highest due to influenza and respiratory conditions, you add in the fact that COVID hasn't disappeared by any means. And this was when the headlines were crisis, catastrophe, even collapse, because the hospitals were full. They didn't have inpatient beds for people coming in through the emergency rooms. There were cases of ambulances being lined up outside emergency rooms and not able to discharge their patients for over 24 hours. That, of course, meant those ambulances couldn't go and attend to other patients. And so there were stories of people who'd broken their hip, for instance, who weren't able to be transported to hospital unless someone could transport them through private means, that they weren't able to be transported for over a day or two. And the Royal College of Emergency Medicine estimated that at times in December and January, they estimated that somewhere between 300 and 500 people were dying unnecessarily due to these delays and the
0: Difficulty getting people into hospital. So that gives us a sense of what the crisis looked like for patients. What were the effects on, and what are the effects on clinicians? So the effects have been profound. And I think this is something that the UK shares with many other
1: countries, but of course COVID-19 imposed a huge burden on medical professionals at every level. Doctors, nurses, everybody who works in a hospital, some of the staff in hospitals Not actually the people that you might think of first, the frontline health staff, but some of the cleaners, porters, janitors experienced very high COVID morbidity and mortality, and that's never been fully explained. So this led to inevitable burnout, a lot of people leaving their various jobs. All of this is substantially exacerbated by the fact that for most people working in hospitals at every level, their pay hasn't been increased in line with inflation. And so depending on Your exact job classification, your real take-home pay is somewhere between 10 and 40% less than it was 10 years ago. And so this means that people who have an option go into other professions, other working conditions, and don't have to deal with the difficult working conditions in the NHS. And then that's just a vicious cycle, of course. Fewer staff, more stress, higher burnout.
0: So you say in your article that the primary contributor to the current crisis is long-term underinvestment in health services. How long has that been a problem and how has it affected the system's capacity and resilience?
1: Well, after the global financial crisis, funding for pretty much all public services in the United Kingdom was substantially cut. And it wasn't just the NHS alone. It was for public housing. It was for public nursing homes and care homes. Now, all of these contribute to greater ill health and more pressure on the National Health Service. And with respect to the National Health Service, funding essentially was plateaued between 2010 and 2020 as a percent of GDP. And now it ranks about 18% lower than the median funding for health services in Europe. And at the start of 2010, it was above that median. So that sort of chronic underinvestment meant that the system was certainly not prepared for the shock of COVID, but also it was struggling even before COVID. And you add that to the downward pressure on salaries and discontent among staff, and it's basically fundamentally thought to be a lack of investment. Along with some other issues, an aging population and a sicker population, but fundamentally, if you spend less on health when you're already just about the average of European countries, then your healthcare system struggles and your targets for things like waiting times in emergency rooms and waiting time to see consultants all increase. And that leads to public dissatisfaction. The question is, can the country afford to increase its spending on health
0: to recover this deficit? In addition to that sicker population, you also mention in your article other contributors, including a dependence on nursing homes and aged care facilities and issues related to training and supporting clinicians. So how have those factors fueled these challenges?
1: Well, the situation with aged care facilities leads to bed blocking. So again, due to the austerity program after the global financial crisis, even though the country's economy did somewhat recover. Uh, we could also talk about Brexit as a potential issue here. But most of aged care for people who don't have a substantial income is expected to be provided at low cost or no cost by local councils. Local councils all had their share of the national taxation substantially reduced. They had to cut services. So finding a care home bed for somebody who needs it for the first time is very difficult. And so You know, the estimates are that often 10 to 20% of inpatients are just waiting to be discharged, could be discharged, but a bed can't be found for them if they can't go back to their own home or be looked after by relatives. So this is a major reason why hospitals are full. The other reason is that the UK has some of the lowest numbers of beds per population in Europe. And again, that's said to be due to a drive for efficiency and just-in-time medicine, so keeping hospitals pretty much full all the time for efficiency reasons. But again, it means that there's really no swing space if something like a pandemic hits or there's no swing space over the winter. And so the lack of social care leads to bed blocking, and that leads to these long lines of ambulances who can't drop off their patients at the emergency room. With respect to staff, this is now finally gaining traction as a huge issue. It's been known for years that the UK, along with, uh, I would say, the US and many other developed countries, uh, essentially doesn't train enough healthcare professionals at almost any level to staff its system. We essentially expect to pick up doctors from other countries. Parenthetically, these are often other countries in Africa or South Asia that can ill afford to lose the people they've trained. And that was the status quo. But the system has really fallen into disrepair further in the UK. Around the year 2000, the training subsidies, bursaries for nurses were substantially eliminated. And so there are fewer nurses trained in the UK. It's a less attractive profession because nurses can graduate in debt ditto doctors, and all of this on top of downward pressure on the salaries, which were never lavish by anybody's definition in the first place, means that just purely financially, it's a less attractive option than it used to be. And so there are fewer health professionals in the UK, just as we do in the US. We wind up scavenging health professionals at most levels from overseas, but that takes time. And when there's a short-term crisis, you can't rapidly replace the physicians you don't have. And then added to that is the sense of burnout and the lack of professional satisfaction. GPs see a new patient, well, they see a patient every 10 minutes, and there are some really quite alarming statistics. So in a survey that the Royal College of General Practitioners did, about two-thirds of trainees said they didn't expect to work full-time a year after finishing their training. And they cited unmanageable workloads. Uh, many GPs work part-time, three days a week, but that all tell you that they do at least an extra day of just paperwork. And the pressures are very high due to, again, the aging, sicker population, but also the pressure to see a lot of patients in a single day and they just don't feel they can
0: treat like they used to be able to treat and that leads to pretty profound professional
1: dissatisfaction.
0: Finally, moving forward, what policy options have been proposed to strengthen the NHS and how much appetite is there among leaders for significant reform?
1: So, reform is a very loaded
0: word in the National
1: Health Service. About every 10 years, there have been quote, reforms, unquote, and opinions vary greatly on whether they've improved things or actually worsened things. Uh, A lot of people think that certainly substantial structural reforms. um, So there was a big move to decentralize the National Health Service in England in about 2010, 2011. Uh, Again, we think of this sort of monolithic entity as being central command and control. there's actually over 260 decentralized commissioning units now that make individual budgetary decisions and decide what services to provide in their own area the obvious attraction was that if you decentralize then your management can provide the services that your local population may need but it was also put in place to try and semi privatize the marketplace and get competitive prices from vendors and a lot of people think that that just led to actually higher prices and less efficiency. So, reform is something that people in the system are very suspicious about. What they'd like is just a higher percentage of GDP judiciously spent and much, much more attention to long term workforce planning. You know, I don't think any country is good at planning its medical workforce. But when you do have a national health system, you know, you do have the chance to look ahead and estimate who you'll need when. But this would require substantial greater investment in training more doctors, training more nurses. And the government, I believe, is about to, as part of the 75th anniversary, announce some of these plans. But there's a lot of skepticism because we've heard plans before, Uh, just three or four years ago before COVID, there was a big plan to boost the number of GPs there are now fewer GPs than there were when that plan was announced. So, you know, I think it all comes down to greater investment. And the issue is that the party that has been in power for the last, what, 12 or 13 years is not inclined to greatly boost the investment post COVID, post Brexit. There are substantial financial challenges in the country. And the opposition party is being careful not to promise more funds because they don't want to be labeled as a kind of tax and spend party when it comes to the election so there really is great uncertainty and so nobody has any faith in the idea that structural reforms are the answer and to the extent that anybody thinks that there are efficiencies to be gained you know if there was any fat in the system 10 or 15 years ago it's certainly been taken out by now People would dispute that whatever was actually, but a lot of the drive to increase efficiency has just led to loss of services, and that then gets into another downhill spiral. So it really all comes down to funding the system with what it needs to be able to offer the services that are expected by the UK population. Thank you, Dr. Hunter.